Hello, you're listening to Thought Starters, a podcast on the business of creativity, recorded in the pod at White City Place. I'm David Michel. On today's episode, the museum. It serves a lot of purposes, as a place of learning, a preserver of important artifacts, and even as a public space for people to relax and spend time. But how we think about the role of the museum does change. Sometimes that's prompted by politics, other times by technology, and then others still because of changing tastes in architecture. In the pod today are two people involved in reshaping museums for the future, and in particular, two museums for children, one here in London and the other one in Berlin. My name's Alan Maskin, and I am a partner at Olsen Kundig in Seattle, Washington. My name is Philippa Simpson. I'm Director of Design, State and Future Plan, which is a capital works program at the V&A Museum. Alan Maskin is a principal and owner of Seattle-based architecture practice Olsen Kundig, where he leads an interdisciplinary team of architects, designers, visual artists and researchers. His team designs everything from buildings, parks and installations, as you'd expect, to things like sculpture, digital art, graphic novels and film. In recent years, Alan has worked on the Bob Dylan Center, a redesign of Seattle's iconic Space Needle, a new museum for an American sculptor, an art park in Sacramento, and the Kinders Museum that is part of the Jewish Museum in Berlin, which opens this May. Dr. Philippa Simpson took up her post as Director of Design, Estate, and Future Plan of the V&A in December 2018, where she works to develop the museum's design studio and lead Future Plan 3, its next phase of capital works across all V&A sites. Having worked for a short time in the commercial arts sector, Philippa moved into museums as curator at Tate, working on a range of international exhibitions and gallery projects while completing her PhD at the Courtauld on display culture and the genesis of the public gallery. She then moved to Royal Museums Greenwich to establish and manage an international touring exhibition program, and then in 2014 joined the V&A. In May of this year, the V&A's Museum of Childhood will close for two years for complete refurbishment. About four years ago, the Jewish Museum of Berlin did a uh, sort of international design competition uh, in search of someone who would design a new children's space for them. The Jewish Museum is uh, began about 100 years ago, and uh, and then... Uh, but. The, the original building that they're in is about 100 years old. Uh, they were created, I think, in 1981. And then they um, hired Studio Liebeskind, the architect Daniel Liebeskind, to um, create a, a sort of addition to their historic building, which uh, was primarily focused on the Holocaust. And then subsequently he did a number of other um, installations, including in, uh, the uh, Blumenthal Academy, which is located across the street. And But what they wanted to create was a children's experience. They wanted to make a place where, uh, because the intensity of the Holocaust story, which is so critical for, um, I mean, I, I was raised with the Holocaust story, and it was really formative as a child for me. So it's a very, very important story for children, but it also um, left many of them with a sort of sense of hopelessness, and so, which is the opposite of what they wanted their messages to be. And so they uh, created a design competition to make a new project uh, for children that would give them a sense of hope and possibility. And it's located across the street, and the uh, Jewish Museum purchased it. It's a 1960s uh, concrete brutalist flower market, and it's an existing structure, and that's where the competition would be held. 
And so we entered the design competition, um, and, it, and it, at the time, Germany was accepting more uh, immigrants uh, than any other country in the world. And as Americans, we were deeply impressed by that. And so that became the impetus for our design proposal, which was to make a place in Berlin where all children could play together, which sounds like such a simple thing, and it sounds like something that exists everywhere, but in truth it doesn't. And so the idea that different communities – uh, different populations would all be welcome here, and that this would be a place to play became the premise for what we wanted to to sort of develop. That's amazing. I'm really struck by the parallels, actually, with what we're working on, particularly around the idea of hope and also bringing people together. So we we at the VNA had an existing building, uh, very much you know in the same in the same mode. Um, from it dates back to kind of um, early 19th century. It was the first building actually on the South Kensington site that was um, picked was it, up. Was it built to be a museum? It was built to be a museum. Yeah. It was built to take some of the exhibits from the Great Exhibition. So that was that was its sort of um, genesis. And what year are we talking about? Um, this is this is sort of 18. Uh, 1840s, basically, 1830s, 1840s, and then in the 1850s, because it wasn't wasn't well received. It was a big, awkward, ugly iron shed of a building, in most people's opinions, built by shipbuilders. I mean, engineering-wise, absolutely fascinating, but, you know, not to everyone's taste. So it was offered around London to different boroughs um, who would express a need for a kind of uh, cultural centre, if you like. And it was picked up and shipped wholesale over to Bethnal Green, which is in the east end of London, one of the poorest areas, still actually in the borough with the highest levels of child deprivation in the country. So this is a really, you know, it's it's an interesting kind of uh, circular story, really, in terms of what the museum can do now yeah. um, for its local community. Um but it went out there, and actually it wasn't until the 1970s that it became a museum of childhood. That was under um, previous director Roy Strong, who recognised that school kids were going there after their school day, looking at the exhibits. And, you know, this was a real opportunity, actually, to kind of engage them with what the museum had to offer. Yeah. So it sort of slowly went down that route. But it's been, I would say, slightly neglected for the past few decades. It's had a bit, it had an extension in 2006, but other than that, we haven't really looked at what it does. It's, it's kind of continued in that vein. Um, and so we, as part of the early stages of our project, so before we went to competition, actually, and then also subsequently, worked with a lot of local school children and families and teachers to understand what they wanted and what they wanted it to be. And the kids came back, and one of the overriding messages was, we want a place that's full of joy. Yeah. We want somewhere that's full of optimism. So that's been our sort of North Star. It's been really, you know, an incredible challenge. Yeah. But, I mean... Um, and you ran a competition, and was that written did. into the brief that, it, that that was the premise that you were looking for? Yeah, it was. So we, we, had, a, um, we had two competitions, actually, because we've got a base build architect and a fit-out designer. Um, well, and, and in the UK, uh, in the UK <laughs> that fit-out means it, exhibit design? Yeah, it is. Yeah, basically, it's exhibition design, user experience design, all of the circulation spaces anything public facing the base build is more structural and um sort of you know um engineering back of house kind of infrastructure stuff um and in the fit out design yes it was we we included that as part of the brief um but we didn't want people coming back with concepts we wanted them coming back with methodologies so we didn't ask for designs actually we asked for approaches um and we wanted to learn more about how they would how they would go about kind of conceiving of what this might be. Have you done that before in, in your in your asks? That sounds really intriguing. Describe the kinds of things. Uh, that, <laughs> like, what did you learn from that? And then did you um, would you do that again? Yes, hundred yeah. percent. We would. And tell yeah. us why. Well, it was it, it was the first time we'd done it actually. So you're right to pick up on it. It was. Um, 
Because, you know, you come, people come with a concept and you're sold on it from the start. And then basically you spend, I think, the next design stage unpicking that and understanding what you can really do, what will actually work. Yeah. And it's hard because people have invested in it and they love it already. If yeah. you ask someone to come with a portfolio with a kind of a, you know, something much more outline. And we actually what we did was we left time the other side of competition to rewrite the brief with the architect. So it was everybody has an equal stake. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's a kind of a team building. Yeah, it was great, actually. It worked really, really well. Um, And yeah, I would. Sometimes it doesn't work because sometimes time's against you and you just need to hit the ground running. You need something and and need to move on. Yeah. Yeah, understood. But if you you do have the time, I think it's it's really time well spent, actually, to to do that. Um, And it moved us towards some really interesting places. And actually, your point about playing together, one of the first concepts that we started developing was this idea of changing our, we have a very large kind of, you know, Victorian scale central hall, which was reconceived as a town square. So it's entirely a place of community. It's, we understand it as something which is um, about democracy and about access and about complete fluidity with the street, really, that people kind of walk in and use it in whatever way they want, have a coffee or go to the exhibition or, you know, meet their neighbours. I think the notion of uh, sort of museums has come as town square. I think would be an interesting th- for us both to talk about. We uh, we I've entered a couple of competitions in recent years and was fortunate to win them. And so one of them was the Jewish Museum of Berlin, which um, again is going to be opening in May seventeenth. And uh, but the other one was the Bob Dylan Center, which is for the American okay. artist Bob Dylan. And uh, and it's uh, it's kind of fascinating to see this sort of transgression of museums as um, almost more cultural centers where mm-hmm. activities need to happen, where education plays an enormous role, mm-hmm. and where um, it's kind of uh, the, the role of the experience that happens within the context of the museum um, is actually probably the most important thing that, that it is considered. Mm. Talk a little bit about this sort of um, this sort of public square that you're creating within the context of your own architecture. And, uh, well, we, I like to think of it as we're sort of making a virtue of what previously has been seen as a bit of a, a chain around our neck. I think a lot of museums, particularly in the UK, which which have this um, this heritage, they're kind of structures of authority. They're the way in which they're constructed, huge spaces. Yeah. Um, and I think people have felt slightly apologetic about it and felt that we want to create something that's welcoming and relaxed in spite of the building. And actually, I think I see it totally differently. I think these big spaces are complete levelers. You know, this is somewhere where... Levelers in what respect? In that everybody can feel that they belong because no one person could own it. It's not, you know, it's yeah. kind of... It, again, it kind of goes back to the town square or big municipal gardens, anything that's at scale. Yeah almost by, by virtue of its size and its enormity, it's sort of open to everybody. So it, trying, to make, trying to make that apparent to people and to kind of open it up. Actually, one really critical move, really minor, is to bring in natural light. We'd had all the windows blocked because uh, of all of the objects. Yeah. You know, and, and just thinking more intelligently about conservation and how we, how we um, treat our collections means that we can bring in light. It's interesting, it's isn't so it? Uh, the, uh, con- the conservation of objects mm-hmm. is really anti-window <laughs> in many respects. Yeah. That uh, it just so that the use of daylight. Um, and uh, at the Jewish Museum in Berlin, uh, we're in an old flower market, and mm-hmm. so and it's an extraordinary building. Although when I walked through on the competition, I was so blown away by this architecture. It has these; um, it's a long, long building. It's, it's uh, again, it's all made out of concrete. It has these beautiful concrete scoops that is allowing natural light into the space. Okay. Um, 
And it's a really powerful space. And I remember turning to the person giving us the tour and said, this is an amazing building. And they said, well, you're the first one to think so. And, uh, and, uh, but I can't believe that that would be true. But what we've done is we built a building within the building in the same kind of context. And there is, um, and so we have landed. And the, the project is centered around um, the themes around Noah's Ark, uh, largely because environmentally we live in a time where um, where climate change is actually affecting you know, uh, the rising tides and waters and so the idea of a flood story or a flood narrative is actually a very relevant story because mm-hmm. it's what's happening in many places around the world. But it's also this ancient, ancient story that, um, uh, you know, the first flood narratives were discovered thousands of years before the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we were actually inspired to make a structure that's sort of part uh, Sumerian Ark. And I think at the British Museum, an, ar- a, uh, an archivist there came upon a um, a little stone tablet that someone brought in in a plastic bag that's about the size of your iPhone. And uh, and in it was inscribed uh, the architectural drawings and dimensions for how to make an arc. And in this description, uh, and this was only discovered, I believe, about a decade ago, mm-hmm. the arc was round. And it had all the dimensions. It was like a speck, literally. It had the materials and dimensions. And so we were intrigued with this idea of a round arc that could literally... Um, and then we merged that with studying what the design team did on uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, the mm-hmm. Discovery One, which was the spaceship, uh, which was also sort of around structure. And I've just completed redoing Seattle Space Needle, which is another round structure. So, yeah, so I, was, I was sort of into that as a shape. Um, so we planted this building inside. But to your point, um, we're using the natural daylight, and it's this north-facing, these beautiful light scoops that literally were bringing daylight in and saving energy in, in some respects. Mm-hmm. But also it was this big unheated structure where they sold these flowers and other things. And um, it also means that we can have a naturally ventilated museum. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't have objects, so that's the thing that, that – you know, it's probably that from a conservation perspective allows us to make this a, about something else for children. Yeah. But the idea that we can literally have fresh air and natural daylight in a museum space, uh, even for children where there are no artifacts, is an unusual thing. It is. It really is, actually. And it, um, I mean, we know, obviously, for for mental health, but also for a sense of joy, as you were, you know, we, we, ours is um, top lit. Yeah. And actually to draw the eye up we know is really important for yeah. mood enhancement, for kind of changing how people are, people's perception actually in their kind of state of mind. So that's been really critical, I think. I mean, you're right. Objects are, are our biggest... It's challenge. Our biggest joy and our biggest yeah. challenge, yeah. And it how is. Will you, how will you... Um, <clears throat> what, what is the concept for the way... Because you have a, a, a long history of children's objects and uh, probably one of the oldest collections of children's things in existence. Um, and... Uh, What's the designer's take and your take on how that should be presented in this day and age? And well, we we are fundamentally changing what we're showing. Actually, I must be honest. So we um, we took a decision very early on, and this again was sort of through consultation with with the young visitors and their families, that it will no longer be a museum of and about childhood, but a museum for the young. So we are now going to be representing the full stretch of the V&A's collections. So art, design and performance objects. So it's much more about creating um, a hub, really, which is about um, inspiring the next generation of designers, practitioners, but also kind of back to your point about hope and optimism, actually, this is this has been really critical. The idea that if we can show, well, there are kind of many aspects of this, really. Design is a problem-solving tool, you know, something yeah. which, which can give hope for the future because it offers you um, a way of thinking about a better world um art is something which can bring can bring joy can bring wellness can also bring kind of political you know 
political statement, um, performance as a main mode of expressing yourself. So all of these different things that we bring to children through the collections. Um, so that's how we've we've conceived it. But I'm curious about, because obviously the, the um, subjects that you're having to deal with in your museum are probably more challenging in many ways than, than ours. I mean, did you talk to young visitors? Did you talk to families? How did you begin to kind yeah. of think about the space? I've, I've done a lot of work for children. I, I was a school teacher before I went to architecture school, uh, and I worked with kids uh, probably for 14 years. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I always felt that children, um, uh, they kind of were, were thrown to the back of the bus in many ways when it comes to design. And so it's thrilling that there's things like your projects mm-hmm. that are coming together where, where children are going to be getting a very high quality of design consideration and thought. And that, that became one of the sort of emphasis of mm-hmm. my own career in terms of what I had hoped to create. So when I, very, when I first started doing design work for children, which was another design competition at the Skirball Cultural Center in Los Angeles, which is the largest Jewish cultural, cultural center outside of Jerusalem, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, uh, we started to work with children on the design team, and it was pretty fascinating. And I have almost every instance since then, I've worked with teams of children to actually generate things. And because I was an art teacher previously, um, for me, it's about getting kids to uh, sit down and draw as a way of telling you the things that are actually most meaningful to them. And I'll give mm-hmm. you an example. Uh, the Skirball sent us around to local schools in um, in Los Angeles, and they knew – they didn't send us to the yeshiva. They knew their own audience quite well. They wanted to broaden this to much larger audiences and to make everyone in L.A. feel welcome. So we went to a number of communities um, and actually met with school children um, in a variety of ages. And uh, I would bring in a, a, a sort of a sheet of paper that was divided into four blocks like a cartoon or a, a graphic novel. And we'd ask kids just – we wanted to find out how much they knew. Like how much does a five-year-old know about Noah's Ark? And, and so we would just ask them, Do you, have you ever heard of the Noah's Ark story? And if so, draw us a picture and write us some words about what you, what you notice. So I took about 75 drawings back to our studio in Seattle. We pinned them all up and we started to study them. And then it just kind of dawned on us. It was like every single kid drew a ramp with animals boarding an ark. And for some reason, that moment Mm. was actually critical to them. And I don't know if we had asked them about that, Mm. if they actually would have told us that or led us in that direction. So I literally just stole that from, uh, frankly, and, uh, and created this installation where kids can actually create animals, and animals are are painted in schools, and kids bring them and they leave them there, and they make they make this sort of commitment and donation to the to the installation, and then they load them onto the ark, and with and then it reloads, and they they can do it in a variety of different learning modalities. And um, what the museum has said to me more than once in the many many years, this is my first museum for kids, is that they've. Um, if they would have had done anything multiple times in the experience, it would have been that. Right. And so I learned early on that, you know, I need to really sort of trust those instincts. Mm-hmm. And so at the Jewish Museum of Berlin, and I think at some point we should talk about the role of museum educators because I think there's been a, a yeah. huge shift in the past decade in terms of the role that they play in museums. But uh, there was a, a, a team of about 20 children that acted as advisors through the entire project. And the museum educators literally brought them in, including naming the project, which is uh, a name they came up with called Anoa, which has no direct translation. It's a name made up by this group of children who just felt that it covered the, the, the Noah's Ark aspect, but it represented something new. Mm-hmm. And for us, um, this combination of you know Stanley Kubrick and the Sumerian Ark 
um, having an entirely new name meant it's a sort of new kind of arc mm. that's about for the future where kids literally are in the position of, of, of being sort of caretakers for the world and presenting that idea to them at a really early age, yeah. which I think is really important. No, that's, that's great. I think that's right, and it's about agency. Yeah. And I think that's, that's something which um, needs to feed through everything. We very, I think we very quickly uh, fall back into habits of prescribing yeah. and prescribing activity as well and sort of, you know, trying to guide and lead and actually having the courage to step back and just allow, allow children to lead is, quite, is yeah. quite tough. It's quite challenging for architects, although actually we have to say our teams have been fantastic with it. But, um, yeah. you know, and you're right, I think then you find, you find things you would never otherwise, ne- never otherwise get to. I think it's, it's interesting you talk about the ramp. We have a ramp in our in our building as well by necessity because we need to get from one yeah. bit of the building to the other. Um, and we were, you know, we kind of struggled with it for ages. Oh, such a pain. We've got to, you know, kind of somehow accommodate this until we actually observed behaviour on it. And it is the most popular part of the museum with kind of, you know, two to five-year-olds because they just charge up and down. Yeah. And you think, great, this is great because if we use that, we can use it to kind of channel them up into into a place where you want them to explore exactly you know, right find the find the virtue and the necessity i guess but yeah, yeah. I've used, <laughs> it's interesting to hear that i've used ramps on a couple of projects and mm. um uh, and uh, the first one was for a museum in seattle called the fry art museum and oh, yeah. uh, and it is a um and there was this real, we were remodeling the building and there was this challenge of how do you get the you know and always the ada ramp or the handicapped accessible ramp is always separate from the other entry. In some mm. ways, it's, a, it's an afterthought. And we began to fuse them. We began to imagine what would it be like if the ramp was the main organizing principle from a design perspective. Mm-hmm. I also did this on the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Visitor Center, which is, you know, the Gates Foundation is, is a philanthropic organization that's extremely interested in equity. Mm. And this idea that there aren't two separate ways that you move through a building, but there's a, there's a universal one. Mm. And actually making it a major architectural component of the project um, has actually had tremendous results aside from just getting people from different levels. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a really, it's a powerful statement, actually. Yeah. Um, easier, perhaps, in a new building, in a yeah. <laughs> kind of inherited heritage building, which is where we always struggle. But, you know, it's, it's really true. You're listening to Thought Starters, recorded in the pod at White City Place. In conversation are architect Alan Maskin and the V&A's Dr. Philippa Simpson. I wonder if we can, uh, Philippa, if we, we can talk a little bit about um, museum typologies and the evolution of museum architecture, because mm. I think that we're we're seeing some some changes, and I think that um, you know I, I'm a lover of all museums, so I, and. Uh, and, you know, London certainly has its, its fair share of extraordinary museums, which always keeps me busy. Mm. And at the end of this, I'd love you to tell me the one thing I should go see today before I hop on a plane. But um, I think there was a period where originally museums were kind of fortress architecture, yeah. that they were in uh, sort of historic structures. Yeah. And so the ability to see inside them or the life that's inside them is probably one of the great challenges of, of, of those kind of institutions. Mm. Yet once you are inside and you see the life of them, there, you know, there can be life changing and extraordinary mm. and then we're, we're finishing a period where the museum as beautiful object um, is sort of a sort of major sort of focus and the thing that museums seem most drawn to is that they want to have this um, very sort of iconic piece of architecture but it feels to me like we're entering into a period now where uh, the beautiful object isn't quite enough and that a mu- museums almost have to do sort of double duty in uh, in terms of other aspects and 
Mm. I think we're seeing a lot of examples of sort of equity and sustainability as sort of being sort of a sort of like inherent in things that are actually worked on. I'm curious from your perspective, because you oversee many competitions and obviously many, many projects. Mm. Have you seen an evolution in the sort of the building typologies and, and where do you think we're at right now? I think we have. I think we've, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's sort of um, never ever looping circle in some ways. I think we've gone past a moment of the architect. I think that's sort of, you know, um, and not that long ago, actually, I think that was still very much, it's very recent. Um, And there's a, there's a modesty that's come with that, which I think is really, which is great. Um, There's a kind of, I mean, it's very nascent. So I feel like we're not actually quite, you know, we're kind of in a period of, of experiment from my perspective anyway, which is again why we wanted to run these competitions in a slightly different way because, again, it's, you know, you come with the right approach and we'll work together towards a solution which might be something none of us expected at the start, you know. Um, so don't kind of fix too early. Um, yeah, there's a... there's a uh, How would I put it? It's a, it's a much more human-led approach, a much more Vista-led. I think, though, um, I don't know that I'd agree that the... I mean, I think your point, sorry if I misunderstood, was the primacy of the beautiful, or the beautiful object isn't enough. I think I take a slightly different approach to that, actually, because I think that um, in parallel with with those trends, what we've had is this kind of proliferation of the digital within museums, yeah. okay, which um, which was seen to be a way of making them more accessible or more familiar. And I think that was a, it was a bit of a false god, actually. I think that hasn't really worked brilliantly not yeah. not in it's all cases it seemed like it was <laughs> <laughs> yeah it seemed like it was the silver bullet right so yeah, yeah, yeah. you know this will make it this will make it feel porous you've, actually I, I know you've had a lot of experience in it share share this revelation like, well, what, well, what, <laughs> why this transition because why this transition i think everyone believed it was like new world order for museums and oh yeah it's not proving to be the case no it? absolutely not this idea that you bring objects to life through the digital to me is completely it, it's a complete falsity actually and, and it's you know i think we've tried every which way i think there are many reasons why it didn't why it yeah. Didn't land. One being that museums are never going to be the best at this. You know, this is not this is not our natural territory. And so, what happens is things are moving at such pace outside yeah. that we end up looking data within two minutes yeah. of opening, and it just it you know it kind of reinforces the idea of the museum as a place of the old, which isn't particularly helpful actually. Yeah. Um, but I also think that actually the the power of the object, which is in its sort of even if you can't touch it, its tangibility, yeah. is kind of visceral. It's yeah. a very physical experience. And and it is very quickly diluted when you try to translate its story in, onto the screen. It just yeah. doesn't. It, it's not a natural fit. Yeah. So um, so I think where we've ended up more recently, um, and actually the previous director of the Welcome gave a really beautiful paper on this um, a few years ago, which is like it's okay to be slow. It's okay to yeah. not try to keep up with that side of things. Yeah. And actually all of the visitor research that we've done and all of the different um, you know, focus groups and everything else has shown us that people see museums as a place they can escape from that part of the world. Yeah. But that's, you know, it's, yeah. it's not so much refuge as kind of, you know, it, I mean, escape in the most um, positive sense. Yeah. You know? um, I, think that, that, um, I think that's something that museums always have, that um, they, create, they have an experience that you simply cannot look uh, get through your phone or on the internet. Mm. They have the real thing. Mm. You know, you, um, I'm heading to Berlin this afternoon and, you know, the, the, the uh, statue of Nefertiti is there and they have it. Like, and, and, it's, uh, yeah. and to see it and experience it viscerally, it's palpable. It's, it's unlike anything else. And so I think there will always be that need to actually have this tangible thing. Um, it's, it's intangible in many ways yeah. uh, because um, also, but I think that's the power of it. But 
Additionally, there's new kinds of experiences that are happening in museums. But before we get off uh, the sort of um, perhaps current disappointment we're both feeling about <laughs> uh, virtual reality, I want to share with you a story. I, um, probably four or five years ago, I attended um, a conference in New York. It's called uh, The Future of Storytelling. Mm-hmm. And it was right at the time when they were about to um, go public uh, with a number of the virtual reality headsets that were not yet for sale. Mm-hmm. So a number of the organizations developing these had given them to creatives to develop them for you, so these these unusual creative partnerships. And it was at that experience that I saw um, ways of storytelling that were unlike anything that has actually existed anywhere. And to me, that was really, really fascinating. Mm. And the one thing, almost more than virtual reality, was augmented reality, which... And I, I wanted to ask you about this because I remember leaving and walking the streets of New York and realizing that every almost every city in the world now has been digitally modeled. And so that becomes something that can actually be tangible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you think of Seattle, uh, if you had a sort of experience where, for example, if you put on, uh, you know, augmented reality, which essentially is going to be you're looking at the world, but information is being layered over everything you see, mm-hmm. and you actually have the ability to go down different rabbit holes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my office is in the historic section of, uh, of Seattle. It's in Pioneer Square. And if you did music uh, in Seattle, for example, example, or the history of music, then you literally could walk down the street and see where Jimi Hendrix played in the club and where the um, where the blues musicians started and the different cultures in Seattle came together. Suddenly, it's a different kind of museum model because mm-hmm. suddenly it turns the museum inside out in many respects. And suddenly the world can actually become the museum. Mm-hmm. And what it shares with um, sort of the best museums in the world is that the city is the artifact. It's yeah. there. Much of it is still there. Mm-hmm. And it's actually tangible to us. Mm. Do you think there's any, it's any no, gold in those hills? No, I, <laughs> no, I don't. I really do. I mean, I guess in a sense it's about choice, isn't it? You, you know, people are going to experience places in different ways and some people yeah. want it and some people don't. And, you know, it's um, – I guess really my point more is to I – mean, you know, talking about kind of leaps of faith, I guess, is, is to have the confidence in, in your – in your public, in your visitors, that they can come and take the time. And I think there's this anxiety that we want to feed, we want to feed information all the time because otherwise people lose interest and it's, you know, short attention span, keep it, keep it moving, keep it, you know. And actually, you know, people have a great capacity to just stand and look and and enjoy, actually. You know, I think we we underplay just the, just the enjoyment sometimes in our Kind of, you know, uh, and your, your point about the role of the museum educator is really pertinent. I think there is like it's very, it's a very complex role now, yeah. Because you have to accommodate all of these different um, uh, responses and also allow them all to be valid. Yeah, you know, it's okay just to come and look. You don't need to actually learn the date of a thing. Just, just see how beautiful it is. Yeah. Um, but no, it's so. But back to your point, really, about um, AR and VR. And we, we we do experiment with this all the time, and we're constantly yeah. we do constantly use it, and we partner up with people to see how it can help us not only actually in the galleries, but actually as part of the design process. So if we can visualise what something's going to be, it's so much easier to describe to people and to get their yeah. feedback before we go too far. Yeah, I think that's so, been a sort of interesting tool. It's, yeah. um, you know, I think uh, many design firms, we have a VR studio in the office and, uh, 
there is this ability where you can literally put a client into their own space before it gets there. And, and you get really interesting reactions. I had no idea that the ceiling was so tall or, yeah. or things along those lines. Or can we make this bigger? And so it's, it's a useful design tool. But I, I sort of feel like architects are sort of um, using it that way in a kind of baseline when there's mm-hmm. sort of many more imaginative ways that it probably could be construed and, 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 and used. When I was at this conference, I mentioned there was an amazing uh, project. Now, four years ago in the um, VR world is ancient history, so and that's when I saw this. But there was a piece called Clouds Over Sidra that uh, sort of dropped you in a Syrian refugee camp. And literally, uh, you could walk into a tent where this girl, 12-year-old girl named Sidra, was living with her family. Mm-hmm. And you literally could control. You could look around the room. You could see her grandmother in the corner working on making a meal and her brother and his friends come running in and you follow him outside while they go play soccer. But there still is this sense of the entire world is looking at it on the news from helicopters looking in. But here was an opportunity where you could look at it from the inside mm. and actually see that experience. And it was amazingly empathetic. And I, in that one example, I realized the power of narrative in relationship to virtual reality. Mm-hmm. But I don't see many projects. Can you think of any really great ones? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, no, because in all honesty, most of the times I go to see these projects half the headsets are broken. And I mean, this is the big problem, right? So it's kind yeah. of technical challenges. Yeah, that's fine. Museums, you know. um, <clears throat> no, I mean, it's interesting. Is it? I, this idea of sort of stepping inside and there's, there's been all, you know, is it Arte Lumiere in Paris who've done these, you know, fantastic yeah. um, uh, immersive environments with, with paintings. I can't help but feel slightly manipulated by them when I'm in them. I feel you're quite right that the narrative is really fascinating and it is a great way to convey and it's a great way to engage engage people. But it it feels that you are very, again, it kind of comes back to how much you lead and how much you allow. I feel very, you yeah. know, it kind of is very... Um, That's exactly it. It's, um, mm. you know, how can you have a, a narrative a narrative thread mm. when you're giving people choice of where they go and what they see? Yeah. And the ways that people are working on that, I think, is is, is pretty fascinating when they mm. succeed or, mm-hmm. or when we feel they do. No, we're right. I mean, we, we do a... Yeah, we have a very analog version actually of this in our new um, in our new museum in the um, Museum of Childhood in its as in its reimagined state, which is using objects to spur children to write their own narratives, their own adventures, um, which is it has been just the most phenomenally successful in terms of our testing. I mean, people just people just love it. Talk and about it's it more. Like, what, 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 like a kid comes in, what do they do? Like, they come into a gallery which is filled with. Um, Stuff from again from across the collection, from across history. So we've got a full kind of five thousand year stretch in our collections, yeah. which is great because it means we can, you know, yeah. we've got all bases covered. Um, but divided into so categorised not by type or by time or by chronology, but categorised by. Um, so we have, uh, for example, a section which is all modes of transport, all vehicles. We'll have one which is all things you might wear. We'll have one which is all characters you might meet, places you might go. Um, and the kids can go around and literally pick from each of those different zones oh, cool. bits to kind of start their own start their own narrative. And it's um, yeah, it's just great. It's something about um, giving enough information, but not so much. Yeah. I guess it's like where do you find the balance? And it's tricky. It's yeah. tricky. Yeah. Um, what were kids playing with five thousand years ago? Oh my goodness, <laughs> so, it's a good question. Not that different to now. Yeah, not that different yeah. to now. In fact, someone did a really interesting study about um, about toys. Or, or the, the proposition really is that toys are the most universal thing because everywhere, everywhere has dolls. Yeah. You make them from a trig or you make them, you know, in perfect yeah. plastic mould, but effectively it's the same thing. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. It's the, one of the most universalising objects you can, you can uh, find. Over the decades in the US, there's been this sort of um, 
uh, sort of self-initiated museums that have actually happened where people who haven't been able to get into the sort of museum world or cultures that haven't been able to get into the museum world have actually generated their own spaces. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking of um, Theaster Gates's um, uh, Dorchester projects, for example, which is based on the basic notion of collections but and things that he collected, but locating them in neighborhoods that um, would never really get the, those kind of cultural projects. Uh, we did a project, the Museum of Jurassic Technology, which I think is a fascinating one in, in Los Angeles. Uh, it was started in the 80s by um, David Wilson um, and his wife, Diana. Um, you know, it, it's a sort of storefront museums. Uh, I think the other big one in the United States is the Underground Museum mm. uh, in Los Angeles. And then um, each one of these has sort of broadened and expanded, and some of them have even been adopted by large organizations like the Museum of Contemporary Art in L.A. and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious... Um, what you feel the role of that type of self-initiated museum is. We also did a project based on the same premise for about two years called uh, Storefront, uh, in, literally in a storefront in our, in our building in Seattle. Mm. And we did two years of, of installations every month um, where we it was based on the premise, what can you do together that you cannot do apart? And, mm. by, and so we would we would put two different, completely different organizations together, and we would provide design, a thousand bucks. We had a month to design it, build it, create programming, and it was kind of the opposite of what you were talking about a while ago, Philip, which is that sometimes museums are challenged by being sort of current or topical because of the speed that mm-hmm. that would require. And so we wanted to challenge that premise by literally like just rolling these things out. Yeah. But it required like not being afraid of, of, of sort of failing or make a mistake. Yeah, and so, yeah. But what we learned from that was amazing. Um, what's your sense of these sort of self-initiated projects that actually then can kind of grow into other sort of major cultural destinations? I think they're, t- they're critical. I mean, this is exactly, it's exactly what challenges the establishment, if you like, to reconsider what yeah. it is and what it does and how it does it. And yeah. I think I mean, we have a number in the UK. I mean, most recently, so Museum of um, Homelessness, Museum of the Vagina, that was an interesting one, um, neither of which had locations or had sites yeah. um, and started really from a premise. And each of them really started without a collection, but either did or didn't build a collection of objects. Yeah. Um, uh, one was online and the uh, Museum of Vagina now has a, has a site. Um, and it's, it's great because it does demonstrate what's possible and it and it offers a challenge, I think, to yeah. to us. And um, no, I mean it's we, especially in the UK, because the you know, kind of long history of these sorts of institutions and their connection to to power and to government. Really, um, you know, we we have a very fixed idea of what what these things should be. Yeah. Uh, you know, what they should do. Um, I guess relevance is interesting or topicality is interesting because you can go at it two ways you can go at it in a kind of reactive and i mean that in a a positive sense reactive way where you pick up on what's what's important um or what's missing let's say what's the hole in the market what isn't covered um or you can go about it um as we were talking before slightly in a mode of universality okay so what is the permanent actually what is the what is the always what always works because that will always be relevant so you to kind of somehow strike the balance between those two push poles i think especially in a big place like ours um is is the is the key but it is extremely difficult um uh yeah and remaining fleet of foot when you're kind of juggernaut with government funding i've got to tell you it's not (laughs) the easiest thing in the world um but yeah i guess that's that's kind of that'd be my approach to it yeah 
It's been nice sitting it's here really in the nice. middle of the park. I actually <laughs> forgot we're doing a podcast, and uh, <laughs> and we, we're sitting in the middle of a park in a sort of glass cube, and uh, and it's actually been a delight chatting it's with really you. It's really lovely to meet you too. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. That was a conversation between Olsen Kundig Principal Alan Maskin and the Viennese Director of Design, Estate, and Future Plan, Philippa Simpson. This has been Thought Starters, recorded in the pod at White City Place. Thought Starters is a DNN co project for White City Place, produced by David Michel, recorded and edited by Sean Crook. To find out how you can record your own podcast at White City Place, find us at whitecityplace.com, on Twitter or Instagram with the handle at White City Place, or send us an email at podcast at whitecityplace.com. And also subscribe to Thought Starters on iTunes. Give us a rating and write us a comment. It really helps. Until next time. <laughs>